to arrest all limits, man. Telling this is the Creative Innovation Podcast. How are you doing? Welcome back to the Vauxhall Zafira Studio, because that's where I'm at in this twin parenthood, recording from my car whilst the babies bring the house down inside. From multiple erupting teeth, and there's people in my studio, so I don't want to bore them by banging the drum for an hour and a half about personal projects or whatever this is going to turn out to be so thank you for joining me in my car i'm sat here with no shoes on pot of coffee chocolate bar it's all going on thank you so much for listening to part one uh, of this two-part self-initiated creative work special i got some great feedback and the numbers have been fantastic so thank you uh, i don't know if any other podcasters out there noticed the numbers dipped a little bit during lockdown i don't know whether that was because people had less commute time or office time or I don't know tell me what's the reasons uh, what were your listening habits um, but they were back up they were great actually they were fantastic for this episode so thank you for anyone who checked in and I hope you've returned for part two because we've got a lot to get through so I'm gonna crack on first of all a thank you to my wonderful sponsors the Association of Illustrators supporting the illustration game with contractual advice portfolio reviews events when they can do them I guess online events these days and the rest of it crucial work for the illustration industry go and check them out over at theaoi.com and illustration x founding sponsor here since day one fundamentally making this podcast a reality so thank you to those guys i'm going to point you back in the direction of their upcoming event so if you listen to part one you'll know about their 10 million trees initiative where they're aiming to plant 10 million trees i think it's by 2030 and they're a part of the 1% for the Planet initiative in conjunction with We Forest, who are their official planting partners. So it's a great cause. Um, they're giving back from each commission that you bring to the agency for any number of their animators, mural artists, illustrators, uh, live illustrators. They've got all sorts going on. So go and check out the portfolios. And for anyone you commission, 1% does go back to this great cause to plant 10 million trees. So the event they've got coming up, you can find it on Eventbrite by searching Rewilding, and the event is called Rewilding, Tapping into the Power of Nature. Uh, So here's the breakdown. 1% for the planet has invited Rewilding Britain's Chief Executive, Rebecca Wrigley, to explain what rewilding is and its role in allowing flora and fauna to find a natural balance. She will walk us through rewarding projects and show their impact. Sorry, rewilding projects and show their impact. The charity Rewilding Britain wants rewilding to flourish across Britain to tackle the climate emergency and extinction crisis, reconnect people with the natural world and help individuals and communities thrive with new opportunities. So it's one to go and check out and I'm going to be checking in for that event for sure. It's an online event, it's free to register, go and do that now at Eventbrite and thank you to illustrationx.com for their kind support. So, uh, picking up where we left off, so as I mentioned on episode one, the reason for doing this episode is partly to celebrate the release of my third book, which is coming out this Thursday, 22nd of October, and it's called Your Mum and Other Stories from the Backstreets of Britain. It's a hugely personal, passionate project that started out as an illustrative, illustrative montage of British street finds and furniture and artifacts, whatever you want to call these mucky items that we find around, like a mattress and a beer can and a fag button dog shit bag hanging from a tree uh it's an indie publishing venture it's the first of its kind for me in print format and it's very very exciting so thank you to those who've bought books so far on pre-order it's coming out thursday it's out to pre-order now get your copy it's a very limited print run um but i didn't want to just exclusively bang the drum about my own project because that would be very arrogant and very boring so 
I'm going to bring you a whole clutch of wonderful self-initiated work by artists, designers and whoever else that's done something amazing, whether it's a, just a personal box checked or whether it's inspired other people or brought them you know, new client work. I just think it's a hugely important thing to keep doing personal work that fills you with magic. And that's exactly what your mum book is. So I wanted to turn the spotlight on to all these other amazing artists who are doing great work out there. So go back and check out part one for features on the likes of Adelaide the Mower, Graham Wood, um, The Wind of Bansal, Jane Boyer. It's an awesome episode. Uh, I'm not saying that I've done an awesome episode. I'm just saying that it's full of amazing talent and really, really great eye-opening projects that should remind all of us why it's crucial to keep doing these projects. So let's keep it rolling. Um... So, number 13, picking up where we left off. Just give me one second for a swig of coffee. Sorry, it's a one-take deal. That's what it's become because it's a busy launch week. So, I hope you forgive the unprofessionalism. But that's what a rest on the mix is all about. So, cheers. So, number 13, Micah Purnell. So, Micah is awesome. He's a designer uh, who I met in my studio in Manchester. And the chances are, if you walk the streets of Manchester, sooner or later, you're going to encounter a small sticker or a giant billboard. Um, and on those pieces of media, there are messages by Mike Capernaum. The one that caught my eye, the one that stood out in the beginning for me was, You are enough. Such a powerful message in such a simply conveyed typographic way. Um, so Mike is a designer and artist working in a range of fields, including some beautiful book designs. Uh, he works with all kinds of uh, people putting books together to make them look stunning. So Micah joined me on episode of 116 of Arrest on the Mix, which you can go and find now for free in the archive, to discuss his feelings on advertising. So he spoke of his former wish to see all forms of advertising removed to um, what has become a more recent acceptance that not all public marketing is bad and that by working to encourage a broader conversation about the effects of public imagery on people's well-being and just generally being more responsible with our advertising, selling virtues was his way of addressing that issue. So by working on, with some of the best non-thinkers in the world and collaborating with ad agencies and designers to create a public-facing campaign to promote a wholesome, uplifting message, Micah has really found an amazing cause here. Um, so anything from You Are Enough to Community Like Never Before, which was an incredible, beautiful message in the midst of the COVID lockdown, the initial full brunt, you know, when people were suffering mental health crises who couldn't resume lives that were in situ like the rest of us uh, Micah you know brought about his amazing simplistic graphic style to blast that message up in Manchester on a high-rise building and it just looked amazing and it was it was a message for the time alongside his wonderful um, community in its right place in its proper place sorry I forget the exact wording I've got it written down here somewhere but anyway the point there we go community like never before um, I think Mike is wonderful for this. I think he's really taken this personal disdain of, of some of the negative sides of advertising to drive forward. And I wanted to talk about his Selling Virtues project. It's the one we touched upon in the episode. So if you like the sound of it, go back and listen to that episode because it's eye-opening, it's eye-popping, it's wild, and it's I think it's fantastic, and I think Mike articulates it really, really well. Um, so that's a statement that stood out for me. And so a year ago... Last month I drove into the city centre, these are Micah's words, quite early, around 6.30am. There was an eerie strangeness to the roads. I passed the Manchester Arena just eight hours after the suicide attack that took 22 lives. A sombre day. A year later, 
I was asked to design a commemorative book based on the paintings by Ghislaine Howard on the courageous act of a young Muslim man. It was just a few days after the attack that Baker had the vision and spontaneity to do something quite remarkable. He stood in the city centre blindfolded with a sign saying, I'm Muslim, I trust you enough for a hug, do you trust me? He stood there with his arms wide open, waiting for the first response. Would it be a hug or a punch? Slowly, people began to embrace him, offering words of kindness, support and gratitude. It was a brave and spontaneous thing he did. Within minutes, he had a queue of people lined up to acknowledge him with this loving connection as they ushered in a moment of healing and heaven. We all intuitively know an alternative way of seeing, but sometimes it takes a spark like Baco. If we smile, invariably, others will smile back. The same with billboards. And that's from micahpurnell.com, so just go and read up on Selling Virtues. It's a wonderful twist on advertising, and Micah using a very smart and considered objective way with no anger, with no disdain, but just a quiet questioning of what advertising does, what it can do, and what it should be doing better. It's an amazing project. Go and check it out. Number 14, Jill Gibbon. So, Jill Gibbon, wow. Um, where to start with this one? Um, so, Jill Gibbon is a lecturer at Leeds Beckett University. But for time, she's been going undercover at arms trade fairs. So just think about that for a minute. We're talking about just, you know, we all we go to a nice print fair, we go to a Comic Con where there are stands and expos and people selling their wares of lovely illustrations and comic books and comic memorabilia and kids in fancy dress having a lovely day out. And all the while, in shady locations, there are arms trade fairs where you can buy nukes and guns and bombs and grenades and it's fucking disgusting. But that's the world we live in and it takes someone like Jill Gibbon to have the balls to go in there and to draw what's going on. I love that. So it could be candid photography, it could be undercover filming, but Jill, in her wisdom, has used an amazing medium of drawing to capture in her way with such a zest that I don't think you could quite get in those former mediums that I just mentioned, what's going on. So this is a piece from Helen Pidd's Guardian piece in 2018, so credit to Helen Fliss. Um, she says it better than I ever could. Disguised in pearls and a suit, Jill Gibbon goes to weapons fairs and covertly draws the attendees, revealing hidden faces of those hawking the tools of mass destruction. Among the sea of pinstripes at the international arms fairs, Jill Gibbon doesn't stand out. In her dark skirt suit, cream silk blouse, glasses and pearls, she looks every bit the global security expert she claims to be on the accreditation form. Yet she is not at the expo to broker a deal, but to secretly draw those making them. Armed with a discreet notebook and pen, Gibbon aims to penetrate the veneer of respectability she says cloaks such events, revealing the vulnerabilities of those who make a living selling weapons of mass destruction. These include the sales rep vomiting after starting on champagne at 11am, the young woman in the tight dress bringing an incongruous glamour to a Scud missile stand, the string quartet serenading bomb makers on the back of the military truck and the mannequins wearing gas masks. Gibbon has been sketching arms fairs since 2007 when she applied for a pass to DSEI or Defence and Security Equipment International which takes place every other year in London. She got in using her real name but gave her occupation as war artist. She said she wanted to practice drawing military hardware. 
trick worked for a few years until an unusually observant security guard noticed she was sketching not tanks, but arms dealers. She protested her innocence, but he was having none of it. If you're a war artist, why don't you go to Iraq and draw, he said, and escorted her to the exit. At weapons fairs, the men are the ones doing business and the women are giving out champagne. Unwilling to give up, she took the drastic measure of changing her name by deed poll to get back in. She also created a sham company and website to make her look legitimate. Her new fake identity was a passport to arms fairs all around the world until 2015. When her, when her lanyard never arrived for DSEI, she tried to blag her way in, putting on her pearls and suit and playing the outraged businesswoman when she reached the front of the queue. Alas, her card had been marked. A young lad looked me up on the computer and could barely keep a straight face as he told me my name had been associated with protest, she says. It would be easier to slip in unnoticed if she were a man, she says with a sigh. These events remain very, very male-dominated and there tends to be this gender divide where the men are the ones doing business and the women are giving out champagne and free gifts. Over the years, she has amassed an impressive collection of arms-related freebies, including a trio of stress balls made up as tanks, bombs and grenades. All will be on display at an exhibition at Bradford's Peace Museum later this month. Um, I should just say this is being recorded long after the exhibition has expired, so it may come back around, but it's not on at the moment. Alongside the sketches, she makes in pocket-sized concertina notebooks, which open out like a tableau. Gibbon is careful not to break the law. She makes sure not to draw certain people present in an identifi identifiable way. I have no qualms about drawing the chairman of BAE Systems because he's undoubtedly complicit, she says. But I know that there are others who just end up there. Agency workers, people working for security companies like G4S. Anyway, she says, any fraud on her part is appropriate since arms fairs perpetrate their own double dealing. There's the deception that it's just an ordinary business when it really involves selling weapons to Saudi Arabia who use them to carry out war crimes in Yemen. She has been involved in the peace movement since, becoming, since moving to Leeds as a student and become radicalised visiting Greenham Common in the 80s anti-nuclear peace camp run by women outside a cruise missile station in Berkshire. Last month, she began a petition that successfully forced BAE Systems to pull out of a deal to sponsor the government-backed Great Exhibition of the North, a summer-long celebration of the North of England's pioneering spirit taking place in Newcastle and Gateshead. The Commoners' Choir, a singing group from Leeds, was one of the first acts to refuse to perform in the arms, if the arms firm was involved, kicking off a domino effect that prompted pop star Nadine Shah and others to follow. The first commoners' choir knew about the sponsors was that they were on the, on the train back from Newcastle after the launch and found a BAE mug in their goodie bag, she says. Now they've agreed to play the opening night of an exhibition in Bradford. What a turnaround. That's my comment, by the way, not chills. I just have to jump in there. Gibbon was outraged when Jake Berry, the government minister responsible for the Northern Powerhouse, called her and the other protesters subsidy-addicted artists and snowflakes. She started another petition demanding an apology, which has been less successful. I've never received any public subsidies for my art, she insists. The people that are subsidy addicted are in the arms industry. For the first five years, Gibbon has been teaching at Leeds Beckett University. Sorry, for the last five years. But earlier funded her artistic endeavours with cleaning jobs and cafe work. She hopes to continue going to arms fairs, which is why she asked her face not to be identifiable in the Guardian's photos. We agree for certain biographical details not to be included in this article either. Her age, her place of birth, where exactly she lives in a lovely stone semi with turquoise floorboards. But if she's so keen on going incognito, why give an interview at all? She replied. 
because there's no point doing it if I keep it hidden. I've got so much material now that it's time to disseminate it. Whoa, that's a project. Um, that's amazing. I mean, you know, I, do, I, do I really need to say why I wanted to feature this project? A, it looks amazing. B, and more importantly, um, commitment to your cause. That's incredible. She's picked a cause and she's stayed loyal to it. And it's amazing, and I think there's also a little lesson in there as well to not be too hasty to be full time at what you do. Some people like to have a part time job, you know, to fund it, to take the pressure off. Simply sometimes just to get a bit of extra social time. Um, I think it was Dion Kitchen on the self promotion episode a few episodes ago that mentioned it was important to her to keep that bar job, to keep some contact with other people because it can be a, you know, a lonely job being an artist, being freelance. Um, but hats off to Jill Gibbon, I think that's incredible and, and what a disgusting setup, what a horrible world we're living in this system where that's going on. I mean, you know, it's amazing. So I'll tell you what, let's um, let's get some money behind Jill. Go and buy a book, which is out now. You can go and find the link at jillgibbon.co.uk. Um, yeah, I think I've said everything that I need to say there. Go and look at the work, it's absolutely mind-blowing and well done, Jill. Number 15, Stanley Chow. So Stan Chow should need no introduction to illustrators. His work has deservedly become completely cult. His portrait vector style is knockout, immediately recognisable, and he's worked hard to make it so. Um, he's also an awesome guy. He was back on the show. Again, I forget the episode, but he's in the archive. Just Google Stan Chow, Arrest on the Mix, and you'll find the show where he tells his story. And it's just as simple as doing the work you want to do and getting it out to the people you want to do it for, you know? All these people need the skills that, that you have and they need the knowledge that you have about your passionate subject, you know? So don't, you know, don't belittle yourself. Don't be the classic artist and, and, and believe that it's impossible, that it can't happen. There's no one going to pay you to do it. It's out there and I hope Stan's Chow is a great lesson about that. So, um, way back when when Stan was charting out, starting out, he basically knocked up a... Knocked up, so sorry, that sounds quite derogatory towards Stan. He created a wonderful bootleg poster for a White Stripes gig that was going on in Manchester. Um, and he got a call from the White Stripes management and they basically told him to pack it in. They said, stop that, <laughs> don't be selling the prints of that. Um, in the same phone conversation, they said, because we'd like to commission you to, to work on the new White Stripes album on Icky Thump. Um, and I think it's amazing. So Stan designed a caricature of lead singer Jack White for a limited edition flash drive on the for the album Mickey Thump, um, and it earned Stan a Grammy nomination in 2008 in the best boxed slash special edition category, special limited edition category. And I think that's amazing. Um, while Stan didn't win the award, he, he spoke of how big that was for his career and how it, you know, it set him on a course. He said uh, it turned his career around. He said. Um, he said he wasn't particularly having a hard time, but it was kind of levelling out a little bit for him. And, you know, he was just illustrating without too much fanfare, without, um, you know, without where he's got to today, basically. And I just think that's amazing. I just think it's a very simple example of creating work for your object of affection, sharing it with the world and not being afraid to dream. Number 16, Hazel Mead's Things You Don't See in Mainstream Porn. So this is a belter, so I think I've mentioned on the show before. Hazel, of course, has been a guest. Um, when she was in, I believe, her second year at the time, between second and third year perhaps, um, she came to visit my studio in London because she got a copy of my first book, Champagne and Wax Crayons, um, for Christmas that year. 
and we became friends off the back of it and I immediately loved Hazel's energy and her commitment to her work and the things she believed in and she was already creating work around these uh, topics that she cared about and she's continued to do that ever since uh, breaking down various taboos working with organizations um, working around good causes and she's awesome she's a great artist go and check her stuff out at hazelmead.com um, but the piece that that stands out for me is a fantastic poster that she created and it went completely viral on instagram and, and really smashed her following through the roof um, you know big big numbers on there now which is helping her cause and i think people do resonate with with these heartfelt pieces that are funny that, that are human and that come from a pure place and that can happen it hasn't happened to me yet and it may never happen because i don't even think it's that important really but it's amazing when it does happen and i love it when it's deserved which it truly is for hazel so the piece was a, a montage of literally things that you, you don't see in mainstream porn that go on in real life a few personal highlights were um, intellectual flirting pets watching peeing after sex struggling to get trousers off i can kind of relate to that one in many contexts not just in the bedroom but it really made me chuckle and hazel is very very funny she's a lovely warm hearted person um and I love seeing her ascent to success and she's doing really well in these early days of her illustration career. So check her out on Instagram at hazel.mead, M-E-A-D. Number 17, Mark Maysmith, uh, writing as Aaron Tings. So Mark Maysmith is um, a broadly talented bloke uh, who I met in Preston, actually, when I was still living in Preston after university. He was running a little second-hand clothes boutique on Fishergate. No, sorry, Friargate, which is one of the main streets in Preston. Where they used to have a few vintage shops up there. And he was running one of the vintage clothes shops, and he would also do these events from there, like spoken word and performance and music. And it was a lovely, lovely thing he was involved with. And that's where I met him. So off the back of that, I learned that he was, he'd was he been the UK's uh, number one like champion slam poet. And I didn't know what slam poetry was at the time, but it's almost like rap battle, but with poetry and its performance, spoken word, intense on the fly stuff and it's really really amazing to watch and Mark is incredible at it so if you ever do get the chance to see him perform do so um, but he wrote this book which is amazing and I completely related to it so this book you know anyone who's spent any time out of work and has had to sign on uh, for job seekers allowance will know just what an absolute monumental fuckery that is um, to have to go through I don't envy anyone who's going through it and Mark went through it in a big way and he wrote a book about it um, and it's called Job Seekers Annoyance which I think is genius uh, you might have a hard time getting hold of it I think he, I don't know if it's out of print now if it's just you know copies knocking around I do have one in a box somewhere I've just, I say in a box because I've just moved house um, I need to dig it out for my bookshelf I've got this awesome bookshelf in my new house which I've just bought it's, um, it's a nerd's dream honestly um, I'm not going to go into depth with that but I've got, I want everything that I love on that bookshelf uh, it's the first time in my life in my adult life I think that I've just had a bookshelf where I've been able to see all the books that I own and go and pick one off at random and, and read a little bit and it's massively exciting as a writer uh, and an illustrator but anyway I'm going off track here but but Mark wrote under the pseudonym Aaron Tings and it's a short book but he he refers to the staff at the job center as Bernie's and it's like Bernie 1, Bernie 2 or something Bernie, I forget all the titles he used. But um, 
basically the book was written in 2003 published 2009 and it's a diary that describes what he experienced during a month trying so hard to transfer his benefit claim only to encounter a long series of dull civil servants who he calls bernies who didn't seem to really care about him or their job it's very very funny it's very it's fantastically written punchy stripped back funny go and check it out number 18 tom gold so I say Tom Gold, I haven't picked a particular project out for this one, but Tom Gold was a, a beacon for me early on. I say early on, it's not something I acted on early on. I've only acted on it now um, in my venture into independent publishing. But he was producing his own comics and selling them in the likes of Magma Bookshop way back. Uh, he visited our university in 2006, which is when I became aware of him. Steve, my uh, lecturer at university and my illustration degree, had pointed us in the direction of Tom and they sold his books in Magma Bookstore so anyone who spent time in Manchester or London hopefully knows about Magma Books it's a, a wonderful independent bookshop and they sell all kinds of illustrated products and cool you know arty stuff basically and Tom's comics were in there and they were self-published and they were very very funny very very dry they had a very unique voice which I fell in love with really quickly like Comics have made me laugh in the past, you know, whether it was the Beano or, or whatever else, but this did so in a different way. It was a very gritty humour that you can relate to. It was the stuff that people say, you know. It was everything from... So there's one scene in Guardians of the Kingdom, which is one of his comics, and it's just a story about two guys who have to guard this fort in the middle of nowhere, which is never going to get attacked, and they're just really bored, and they're bickering with each other. And there's a wonderful scene where they've got their clothes hanging up on the castle wall out to dry and they're both sat naked looking out over this sunset horizon. And there's just a speech bubble that says, you know, this is exactly the time we get attacked. <laughs> it's just, it's that kind of humour. And there's also a bit when they're looking out over the same horizon and he's going, you see that over there? And the guy's going, where? And he's going, just look there, about three quarters on the horizon between the sun and the, the hills. And he's going not seeing it he's going come on you can you can see what i mean and again it's that conversation we've all had and tom gold has got a fantastic wit about his writing and the illustrations complement it perfectly and he's done amazingly well for himself all on his own terms illustrating for the likes of the guardian the new yorker um he's a superb example of what you can do by setting your own direction you know so for anyone who's not aware of tom gold's work and i spell gold g-a-u-l-d please go and check him out, tomgold.com, and treat yourself to one of his wonderful books or comics, because they really are a delight. Number 19, Cold War Steve. So, shame on you if you're not aware of Cold War Steve. His work has gone deservedly viral. He really is the visual voice of Brexit Britain. Um, these apocalyptic, dire, hilarious collage pieces are as chaotic as, and as disturbing as the government's response to the current crisis, in my opinion. Um... I just think that they're special, they're over time. Um, and there's a lovely deeper story about Steve's own mental health here. Uh, so it says, yeah, Steve, I'm getting my words mixed up there. I get mixed up with Steve McFadden, who plays Phil Mitchell, who's in all these pieces, um, thinking he wasn't called Steve, but the artist is called Steve. He's called, no, he's not called Steve, he's called Spencer. Sorry, head's gone here. So all the works feature Steve McFadden from EastEnders, Phil Mitchell. And every scene is a, is a, it's a monumental uh, blast of chaotic, horrible Brexit brain. So I'm going to read a little bit from another Guardian piece here. It's from Harriet Sherwood's piece. 
about Cold War Steve. And the example I wanted to um, set with this project was the capacity for not just catharsis, but those coping mechanisms we all need for our creativity. And there's potential for going viral, you know, for going setting us up a career we never knew was out there or a direction or a twist in our career or you know a, a helping hand to a place we didn't think we could get so this is from harriet sherwood's piece in the guardian spencer 44 grew up in a socialist family in the west midlands his father worked at the british leyland car plant in longbridge his mother later became an english teacher he loved art as a child but after his application to study fine art at wolverhampton university was rejected he had a series of jobs in factories and warehouses over the years depression and alcoholism took a hold and in 2016 he had a complete breakdown and attempted suicide. After a period in hospital, he began to make collages on his phone, sharing them on Twitter. It was a coping mechanism. It was if I was creative thing if I was creating things, I could focus my mind on that rather than crashing anxiety attacks. Cold War Steve, a series of images of Phil Mitchell slash Steve McFadden, superimposed into Cold War scenes, definitely helped my recovery. He has not touched alcohol for more than three years. Well done, Matt. That's a big uh, milestone. The artist known as Cold War Steve, whose image of Brexit Britain sinking beneath the Thames graced the cover of Time magazine this month, would have gone on Twitter and ranted. Instead, he used the social media platform to share his versions of the Hieronymus Bosch-type hellscape. Love that description. I know from Twitter audience they are completely dismayed by what's happening. Not just Brexit, but Trump the rise of the far right, the increase in hate crimes. But there's something quite powerful about laughing at these people, flaying them alive with humour and sarcasm, he told The Observer. He has produced a book of his work, The Festival of Brexit, and has begun selling limited edition prints and giant postcards of his collages. But Twitter, where he interacts with 176,000 followers, remains his favourite showcase. His work features public figures in typically English settings, seaside towns, low-cost supermarkets, working men's clubs, car boot sales, a nostalgic place of Frey Bentos pies and insipid high streets. Among the Brexit cast list are Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Theresa May, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Jeremy Corbyn and the Queen. An international presence is supplied by Trump and North Korea's Kim Jong-un. There are also a handful of figures who epitomise Britishness. Scylla Black, Noel Edmonds, and most notably, Phil Mitchell, the EastEnders character played by Steve McFadden. Mitchell appears in almost every collage created by Spencer. Exhibitions, books, personal coping. There's a common thread there, isn't there? ColdWarSteve.com Number 20, Murugaya. So, go back to episode 102 you want some context for what I'm about to tell you and then go and listen to number five in the in the cabin casts the uh, the COVID-19 creative cabin casts that was a short series of interviews checking in with creatives from their cabins during lockdown so Marug- uh, Muragaya he was on the, the episode 102 when he was going under his full name Sham Muragaya he now goes under the artist name simply Muragaya which is I think is an awesome move by the way um when I met Sham there was a part of him which struck me as slightly fatigued with his creativity. And I say that in the most um, complimentary manner because he just produced this amazing book for Lawrence King. A really laborious, where's Wally calibre landscape, a busy, busy scape of all these people. And the idea was to find a dude from the Big Lebowski movie. Uh, his book was called Where's the Dude? And it's beautiful. If you love that film, you really like the book, go and buy it. 
But Sham's other work, there was a pocket of his work that was bordering on surrealism and it, and it really he really grabbed me. And we brought this up in the podcast and he talked about his longing to explore that and themes from his Sri Lankan roots in the pieces. And I really wanted him to push that because for me, my personal taste, it was head and shoulders above the stuff that he was doing for various clients at the time. And, you know, we, we brought that up, and as, as I got the feeling that this wasn't his most favourite work, it, it was the case, and we talked about that. And, and regards his more surreal stuff, he was apprehensive about the market for this work. You know, we, we do. This is the point of this episode, really, is about it's the doubt that we place on ourselves, you know, the worry that this stuff is too out there, it's too personal just for me. Who's going to be into that apart from me and my weird mates? That's the notion. And... Sham was producing this work back at the time and we checked in again on the cabin cast and he talked about how he was he'd set up a new website he'd gone for it he committed to what he saw and what he wanted to do with his new work and my my god my head was blown off with what he produced he was to me it was so unique so sham so different and so refreshing when you see so many uh, duplicated styles because of you know just technology and we're all a lot of us are exposed to the same inspirations and using the same programs and the same trends and sham stuff is just out there on its own and every time i share it it just gets kicked down the road so much by so many people who are just going whoa what the f- is that that's amazing and it's really really awesome to the point where i, I you know I, I don't you know i'm not well off enough to buy all the art that I would like to buy or buy all the anything I'd like to buy but I trapped myself to one of Sham's seasonal prints which I think is an amazing touch by the way he's releasing these limited edition uh, seasonal prints which are um, beautiful, they're, they're really special quality, they're, they're bright they're surreal, they're, they're an absolute blast to the mind if that makes any sense um, but he's gone from in my opinion a talented but unremarkable illustrator okay i hope no one i hope he doesn't take offense to that because it's not meant that way he was a very technically uh, accomplished and doing really well on the face of it with clients and everything in his illustration but it didn't it didn't grab me you know it didn't make me go whoa what's that and his new stuff my word it grabs me by the my hair and it slams my face into the brick wall i'm not overstating it that's what it does it's my big recommendation and if you go and check out his recent cover for Anorak magazine and a couple of other commissions, I was so thrilled to see that because I'm a big lover of this new work of Shams and I knew I could see that there was a big, big market for this stuff. And you, you know, you don't see the wood for the trees when you're the person creating it because it, when it is personal, that's the thing. It, it does fill you with doubt. But I'll tell you what, it's amazing and I'm starting to see it creep out there and I have no doubt it's going to be a major, major success and this is going to be wherever he wants to take it. So nice one, Sham. Um, go and check it out, muragaya.com. That's spelled M-U-R-U-G-I-A-H. Number 21, Lucinda Rogers on gentrification. So Linda is a, a chief inspiration of mine. Uh, Linda? Jeez, sorry, I'm knackered. I'm a new parent. I'm, I'm just knackered. <laughs> Let me start again. Lucinda Rogers on gentrification. So this is uh, from the Association of Illustrators, one of the show supporters. Uh, it's from a piece they wrote. Uh, just for a little bit of backstory, Lucinda Rogers is a major inspiration of mine. So 
back in the days at uni, you know, we weren't online as much, anywhere near as much as we are now. We had phones, we had access to, you know, email and stuff occasionally. But we didn't really uh, use it as prolifically as we do now. Um, so, you know, we still had to go to print mediums and books and get our inspirations elsewhere. And one of the people I found at that time was Lucinda Rogers, because I mentioned him earlier, but Steve Wilkin, who's actually featured later in this piece, um, he used to bring in copies of The Guardian from the weekend and, you know, he'd keep all the illustrations and leave them on the coffee table in the, in the university studio. And Lucinda's work just was stripped back and raw and full of life and I loved it and it was it was reportage done on location so she always works on location um, and she also addresses you know personal locations that she loves or topics that she feels strongly about with her work and it's always just representational of a place but it's often got a deeper message so this is a piece from the AOI uh, about Lucinda Rogers addressing gentrification with this project where she set up on Ridley Road Market, an iconic London location, to draw and it was about her speaking out about you know, how we need to watch gentrification and make sure it doesn't ruin heritage or take what makes a place special away from it. So this is from the piece. There seems to be a weary inevitability that to build new stuff, the old things have to go, says Lucinda Rogers of her Ridley Road Market reportage project. Recording what what is there is simply to put a marker down and say these places are important. If there is no record of something, it is easier to sweep it away. Lucinda's exhibition at the House of Illustration presents a strong, effective record of one of London's communal spaces, which are increasingly under threat from gentrification. Land is more valuable to housing developers than as a space that benefits those already in the local area. And with a large apartment building now constructed facing the 200-year-old market, Lucinda created images from both the market and its new 50 East Dalston building to document how the area is currently and to emphasise how, without these marketplaces, city life will become more and more solitary and unnatural, which is not good for people's health or the health of a city as a whole. So there was a question here in the article that stood out, and it was, is there a particular response you hope to see this work might provoke from the people seeing it? Um, and she responded saying, I can't hope for any response beyond realising what is there in Ridley Road, what is around the corner, around the back of our daily lives. Going back to the above idea, I wanted simply to draw the building from a perspective of the market and the market from the perspective of the building. If we knew more about each side, we might exist together better. Depiction can often be enough. Lucinda's visually dynamic record is recorded, created with affection. Sorry, is a record created with affection and appreciation of a facet of culture. It will speak to many in different ways about and the surrounding conversation will evoke ideas and inspire in many ways. Um, sorry, I just read that out like it's part of a piece that was uh, <laughs> onto my own notes. So, I mean, that write-up says it all, doesn't it? Uh, Lucinda's work, it, it paints a place, a picture of a place with such punch and such power that she's just a pure artist and I love what these projects can do. So, yeah, as I put in my notes there, so I think depiction of a place is often enough. You know, you can put a marker down, you can put your spin on it, create the work, and you can leave it for others to run with. And I just think that's why we don't always need to worry about, you know, the far-reaching impact of our work, how we can change the world. It shouldn't be a big thing. Drive at that passion, you know, burrow into that subject and stay there and work out it. And it's just amazing what can come out of it. 
uh, and I just think she's a tremendous. I think um, I think Linda's Hulk, Lucinda, Linda, Jesus, Lucinda's career has all been it's been forged from the self-initiated, right? And it's one of the greatest I've seen. Simple as that, that's my opinion. But go and check her out, Lucinda Rogers. Dot co. UK. Number twenty-two, uh, Craig Black. Craig Black's ripped paper shoe boxes. So um, we find inspiration in the most unlikely of places. Um, recycling bin in Craig's case. So Craig is a friend of mine, and he's an awesome artist and designer from Glasgow, or just outside Glasgow. Um, and he came to visit me for episode. Can't remember. Uh, an episode in the archives of Arrest All the Mix, and he's the most studious, passionate, um, humble, nice guy out there, and it sh it shows in his leaps and bounds. He's come along in the last few years since he's gone freelance. His studio is fantastic, um, so go and have a look at the broad range of his work. But the project that he created was a typographic um both an installation and the shoe boxes so basically he he sent me this uh he sent me this message to break down the project and the reason i liked it is because i've always had an affinity for the found the found item you know the the chance thing that you include in your work and he wrote this and he said during the early stages of the pandemic like many others i look forward to my one walk a day with much excitement during one of those walks, I walked across the promenade of Gurok, where I live in Scotland, and I noticed this overflowing recycle bin. There were newspaper clippings and magazines torn and scattered across the ground, so I did my bit for the community and gathered it up and put it in another recycle bin. It was at that very moment I got an idea. The layered effect of torn paper typography that was splashed across the pavement led me to create a personal project which has now led to amazing opportunities, such as exhibitions in New York and New Delhi, as well as commissioned work. I guess the moral of this story is that we should all try to view the world as a book of endless inspiration rather than just the internet. And to incorporate personal work into the practice, it can lead to amazing opportunities that would have never otherwise thought of. And when you see the, the results of Craig's work, it's, um, it's amazing, it looks great. And there's a story I've told before, and um, forgive me if you've, if you've already heard that, but Craig, um, not Craig, sorry, Bill Parker, who's a, a real mentor of mine and, and a, my college tutor on my graphic design BTEC, he said to us on the first day that we spent on that course that in six months you, you guys will all be, you know, fishing in skips and dragging in big pieces of board that you found in the road and all that kind of stuff. And we all laughed because we were all novice little teenagers, but... It's so true. Uh, I've never left that ever since. I've always been a you know a hoarder of found items and including things in my work or using it as inspiration. And I just think Craig's done it with uh, great effect. So if you go on his website, look out for two projects. One of which is his Shoes to Share Planet Art, which is a typographic installation. Planet Art featuring Wonky World is an international art competition for children, a global initiative by 3D Visualization Studio Image Foundry. The competition hopes to use the power of art and harness the creativity of children to inspire positive change in the world to paint a better picture. And Posters for the People, a lettering installation. Posters for the People, an In Good Company Leads project in collaboration with renowned artists from across the UK. A campaign to bring joy, art and colour to the streets so that the people can spread positivity with art. 
inspired by the public outpouring of support and respect for NHS workers and key workers. In Good Company Leeds wanted to create a campaign to spread joy, colour and smiles to the streets. Um, it's brilliant. I think, um, the, you know, the, the, Craig told me the work has gone on, so it's why I've said in this piece. Exhibitions in New York and New Delhi, and um, I just think it's great. You know, keep an eye out in the world. Get off your phones. Look up. Look at little textures and, you know, listen to what people are saying. And I think in this book that I'm about to release for your mum, it's all gathered observations throughout my life of walking around and just, you know, finding things funny that people have said and being observant to the world around me because it truly is where you pull the stuff that sets you apart that makes you unique that helps you to find your creative voice and sadly everything that's on the internet is a shared inspiration and the more time we spend on there and the less time looking around the more we all become duplicates and it was um sean thomas who mentioned his fear of this uh he said i think it was on the podcast that i did with him on on arrest on limits go back and listen to that he's the uh executive creative director at john's Knowles ritchie agency and he said that, you know, this whole thing about algorithms and AI taking over creativity only happens if we all use the same website builder, if we all get our inspiration off Google Images, if we all think the same way. And it's completely true, you know, if we all just look in the world around us and interpret it in our own way, using our own background, our own lived experiences, that doesn't happen. And uh, Craig's project is a great example of that. I feel like off the back of it, I should also mention um, Stephen Bliss, who was again another show alumni. He's the uh, iconic illustrator for the Grand Theft Auto video game series. But after his Rockstar Games work, which went on for many years and was hugely successful, he wanted a, a sharp change and he said he developed this fascination with the ripped subway posters in New York City where he lives now. And he said he started to pull pieces from um, these, you know, layer upon layer of advertisements and uh, going back to Craig's piece, the way that these ripped typographic and imagery came together to create these Frankenstein chance one-of-a-kind hybrids and with the pieces he ripped off he started to make his own amazing collage artworks and draw back into them and sell them as originals so do go and check that out on Stephen Bliss's website if you get a chance. Number 23 Sarah Beetson's Coney Island. So Sarah is uh, an illustrator and an artist she's based in Australia and she's from Manchester originally um, and her work is incredibly joyful um, the illustrative style is just infectious and um, her brilliant and unique look, by the way, is exactly like her artwork. And I just think it's magical because she's such a burst of energy when you meet Sarah. And her work makes so much sense. Um, so if you take one look at the deluge of colour and energy in Sarah's work, you'll see exactly why Sarah wanted to make a three-month residency in New York City's dilapidated theme park, Coney Island, possible. Um, and she used crowdfunding to do it, which I think is amazing. You know, there's sometimes a tendency to think that if we're going to crowdfund a project it should be something benevolent or charity based or something you know doing good and i'm not saying sarah's work isn't doing good but you can be a little selfish and a little indulgent with your creative practice and i think sarah's purity and authenticity and the joyfulness of her work just it just lines up so well with coney island and all those retro theme park graphics and as a fan of her work i, I chucked in a tenor i think it was at the time i just thought I need to see Sarah there doing that because she absolutely lives it and she's the prime artist for doing this project. And that's what she did. And I think because of that purity, people got behind her passion and her honesty about what she was doing and why she wanted to do it. And she went and spent three months there, lived the dream and created a broad range of artworks, including visitors, workers at Coney Island, signage, rides, candy floss, food menus. 
go and have a look. It's on a website of sarahbeatson.com, but it's just a brilliant example of the power of peer and public support when you really believe strong enough in an idea and work to make it happen and do it in your own way. Number 24, Dougie Wallace's Supermarket Sweep. So Dougie Wallace is a, uh, a documentary photographer and he's fantastic. He's from Glasgow originally and he has done a series of books including The Blackpool Stag and Hen Scene which is just so raw and amazing and wrong in the best possible way where he just hangs out and shoots the subject of it says on the tin. And his latest one, Supermarket Sweep, so here's the description from his website. As the new normal unfolds under COVID-19 lockdown, Dougie Wallace depicts the changing rules of supermarket shopping etiquette while celebrating the unsung heroes of this emergent protocol. Faced with news headlines that were often confusing at far times, uh, sorry, at times fear-mongering, but usually morbid, as the COVID-19 pandemic carved its deadly path of contagion across the world, London-based photographer Dougie Wallace set out to document in his distinctive style only sh the only show in town shopping for food as supermarket shopping becomes the main focus of social life he what he catches the moods and fashions with seasons changing from the totally baltic through to what they call in glasgow taps off weather the saturday shop the weekly routine for most working individuals and families only a few weeks ago feels like ancient history as the new normal sets in it created a huge chasm between the new reality of life bc before corona Initially confused and frightened shoppers cleared the supermarket shelves of anything they could get their hands on, but now the panic has settled down to the regimented orderliness where customers wait patiently to enter the shops, killing time by staring into their mobiles or reading newspapers and books, says Wallace. White-collar workers dress down their professionals, allowing them to work from the comfort of their home. But the rebels dress up in an effort to defy often arbitrary restrictions. Meanwhile, supermarket employees soldier on, keeping things moving at great personal risk from the COVID-19 virus that threatens with every intake of breath. The humble face mask has become the symbol of the crisis. Wearing masks should have been recommended for all and compulsory for the most vulnerable. Instead, the utilitarian stock of medical-grade disposables and painter's masks quickly ran out due to the UK government's unpreparedness for the pandemic and the resulting fear of stock depletion of medical masks for frontline workers. It seems that one of the wealthiest and the most powerful countries in the world could not provide protective equipment for those whose jobs involve saving lives. So people made do with what was readily at hand and made their own. Some homemade masks are simply functional, following online advice showing how to make them from such unlikely materials as J-cloth and rubber bands, preferably hair bands, handkerchiefs, t-shirts, and even socks. Others are more inventive, ranging from artistic and homely to, well, bonkers, heavy-duty industrial masks, paper bags and motorcycle crash helmets, the wearing of which would have been enough reason for cautious shop managers to call out the cops just a few months ago. Although, as the politicians are so keen to tell us, we are all in this together. The real heroes of this story are the supermarket staff. Uniformed security guards control shop entrances on a one-in, one-out basis, as in nightclubs. Checkout staff directly facing customers, each a potential carrier of this deadly disease, are on the front line, with floor, with floor staff helping customers trying to observe the newly imposed two-trolley width distancing rules, which is all but impossible when stocking shelves in the narrow aisles of a Tesco metro. Employers, who initially seemed reluctant to provide personal protective equipment, PPE, 
for shop floor staff. Rumour had it, for fear of customers finding them unsettling, gave in and introduced safety measures. A new barricaded shopping landscape emerged with plexiglass partitions or sneeze screens for checkout lanes and branded uniforms, aprons and t-shirts all blasted with slogans such as please keep two metres apart. However, unlike shoppers who are encouraged to be expedient with their shopping trip, staff if they are to work have no choice but to spend eight hours or so a day trying to breathe damp exhaled air through fabric. Wallace says, because of the strict new laws on movement, I really only allowed to go in the shops in the area I live in Islington and Sainsbury's Whitechapel Superstore, where I shop for my mum. Street photography, he adds, can be challenging at any time, but navigating through the health warnings of two metre distance keeping makes a challenge of getting a good shot even greater. I'm shooting with my Olympus EMI, my EM1 Mark III, which is small, fast and light. The screen the secret is to avoid eye contact and the giveaway of looking at the back of the camera. Even shooting every day is still counterintuitive, which, I tell myself, explains why I've dropped my flash during the first outing. Add to this, there's the potential professional hazard of holding a camera close to my face while trying not to touch my eyes or mouth and remembering to regularly sanitise my hands and equipment. Documenting life in the presence of this invisible enemy is perilous work, but we're all learning how to do this new thing together. Go and see DougieWallace.com Number 25, Steve Wilkins, 738. So Steve was my lecturer from 2003 to 2006 at UCLan, which he has sadly just called time on a 21 brilliant years in the job. Um, so good luck, Steve, in your next endeavours. But he made a newspaper, and it was a newspaper of selected highlights from a decade's worth of gorgeous sketchbook drawings documenting commuters on the 738 service from his native Hebden Bridge in Yorkshire to Preston to lead the illustrative degree illustration degree course. Uh, it's amazing. Steve's loose black and white drawings are so alive and you almost want to flinch and look away for fear of the subject in the drawing growing aware of you and, and looking around and clocking your intrusive gaze. That's how good they are. So Steve had been doing this over a decade and he compiled them in his newspaper in the project was called 738 and I just think it's fantastic because you know we've all done it we've all seen an interesting person on the train or we've you know I've seen somebody on the bus that's caught our eye because of the way they're dressed or whatever um, and you know Steve has just covertly drawn these people and they look brilliant as a collection and the newspaper is called 738 I don't know if you can still get a copy but you can go and check out his blog which is over at and it's all written in words 738.blogspot.com and there's still loads of you know news articles and drawings on there and everything else um there was a question from bloomberg city lab who did a piece on this project and they asked steve how do you decide which passengers to draw and he said i draw whoever i can see whoever sits by me whoever i can see through gaps between the seats it's really great when someone falls asleep so i can get them to stay still as it is, I draw twitchy commuters, texting on their mobiles, typing on laptops, reading the newspaper, books, chatting to each other. I would say I spend anything between 5 minutes and 20 minutes on average, as I work purely from observation, on the spot. I don't rework them to add anything. Um, I spent three years living in London, so I know how rubbish the commutes can feel. And um, But we creatives have to use that time well, and I think we're very good at doing so. I've written numerous parts of my books, my short stories. Uh, I've drawn you know, and composed illustrations on buses, on trains, especially when I was in London. So 
I just think it's a smile-raising, organic example of how good the results of such a uh, transit project can be. So, uh, nice work, Steve, and it's well worth going and having a look at that project. Um, I just think it's fantastic. Uh, go and have a look. Number 26, Storybound. So, Storybound is a radio theatre programme designed for the podcast age, hosted by Jude Brewer and with original music composed for each episode. The podcast features the voices of today's top literary icons, reading their essays, poems and fiction. In each episode of Storybound, listeners will be treated to their favourite authors and writers reading some of their most impactful stories, designed with powerful and immersive sound environments. So I found this podcast... um, while searching for more short story content because as a new father of twins um, I have very limited reading time so audiobooks and podcasts have become a great way for me to keep imbibing good content and keep my mind juiced for when I do get time to write um, and it's a beautiful beautiful podcast and it's a, uh, it just shows how powerful wonderful sound design and soundtracks with well read uh, stories can be in audio format it's such great escapism so if somebody does want you know just wants to get away from the screen doesn't want to watch netflix anymore or or be on zoom or whatever you know or even read a printed book go and lie on your bed put your headphones on get some good sound and and tune up tune up um fire up Storybound. it's amazing really well produced really beautiful really quite moving some of the stories because of the great writing quality on there i remember walking the dog and listening to this when i first discovered it and the first episode i forget the title it's really quite emotional and you know it did bring a tear to my eye and i just think uh, it's a, a wonderful pioneering example of just how good storytelling can be in audio format uh, when it's done to this degree so go and check it out um it's on any good podcast networks and it's on all the social platforms search for storybound number 27 craig oldham's they live a visual and cultural awakening so craig was on the on the podcast two episodes ago alongside the window band sal um, and as i said craig had re-inspired me to do the things that were personal to me and that's what initially got me writing again doing isolation watch and your mum books that are um, about to be out this week both of them um it's because i got bogged down i think i mentioned this on part one with you know with all the words world's ills primarily the climate crisis but also just all the shit that's going on in the world the far right and everything else and just the horribleness it feels heavy sometimes and it makes you kind of want to give up on your art and think well what can it be doing in the world you know but it can be doing a lot and craig's work alongside the windows was a, a key example a key uh, reminder of just how powerful the subtle and the personal can be so the book they live it's, it's it's from the film they live john carpenter's so the description and it's out on rough trade books um and it's well worth investing in it's amazing this book it's all typographic beautiful stuff it's a visual celebration of one of the 80s most revered cult films designed as a perfect replica from the film's iconic magazine stand politics art music comics literature philosophy and of course film they live touches on topics that are as relevant now as they were then leading cultural figures explore and examine the film's influence and impact forward is from director john carpenter and it's published by rough trade books um Written and directed by legendary filmmaker John Carpenter, They Live from 1988 is a science fiction action film which belies many of the genres in which it's cast. 
Dismissed by critics upon release, the film has gone on to claim a cult following and earned a reputation for its political satire, social commentary, philosophical and technological forecasting and visual aesthetics, areas in which the film has both inspired and exerted its distinct influences since. Starring former WWE wrestler Roddy Piper, Bailey Liv follows an unnamed drifter as he discovers the ruling class are in fact aliens. Probably true. Stumbling on an antidote in pair of sunglasses, the truth is revealed. The people in power have been concealing their identity and operating clandestinely to control humanity through consumerism, greed and subliminal messaging in mass media. On the brink of his discovery, the protagonist, Nada, seizes a magazine from a newsstand and what it unveils changes not only the course of film, but the aesthetics of counterculture indefinitely. The publication is that magazine. Produced as a perfect replica prop, with exceptional attention to detail, They Live, a visual and cultural awakening, celebrates the importance of the film today and explores its influences, inspiration and ideas, as well as its relevance to us socially, culturally and politically. The book offers commentary through original contributions on the film's core themes, including Street Eyes, Shepherd Fairy, responsible for the Obey label, an iconic hope poster for Barack Obama, celebrated musician and soundtrack aficionado John Grant, radical philosopher and thinker Slavoj Zizek, international subvertising and activist group Brandalism, international horror and science fiction critic and author Roger Luckhurst, as well as featuring the original short story Eight O'Clock in the Morning, on which the film is based. Its comic adaptation, written by Ray Nelson and inked by Bill Ray of Ren and Stimpy fame, it also features the work of artists Barbara Kruger, Jenny Holzer, Gorilla Girls and more. Subliminal messages play with your mind throughout, as well as the smell of bubblegum, and even an essay written in the language of the film's aliens. Um, sorry, I lost my... Uh and the means to decode it. A distinct and meticulous book is a must for any film lover and is an artefact to behold in both its object and conceptual sense. It's an amazing book, but more importantly, um, I was made aware of this film through this project. And to see the cultural ripple effects this film has had by inspiring the likes of Shepard Fairey mentioned in this project, you know, to do such great, powerful political work and uh, iconic work, is amazing and, and that was a key reminder for me you know it didn't have to be a big placard with a burning planet on it it didn't have to be um drawing you know police attacking a black man or whatever the current issue is it, it, it can be funny it can be whimsical it can be about movies it can be about books it can be about whatever the hell your thing is and that reminder from craig was really important for me personally and during the episode in which we talked about it um he, he said you know there's going to be a series of these they are called um Oh, what's the name? Epiphany Editions, and it's going to be a series. So, you know, it's making these unseen props in films. So, you know, you might want to see the front cover or uh, one page in the movie, but he's actually designing the full books, which I think is a genius idea, by the way. Um, he's also planning on doing the Beetlejuice, um, the handbook for the recently deceased, which is awesome. And The Shining, uh, you know, the notes that Jack Torrance is looking through for, like, the boiler in the house and things. I just think it's just great. Go and have a look. Uh, rough Trade Books and CraigOldham.co.uk. Number 28, Raw Studios Turkey Project. Um, let's have a look. Let's Talk Turkey, it's called. So, this is from We Are Raw Studios website, which you can find at WeAreRaw.co.uk. 
Um, for one of our festive studio projects, we shone some Christmas lights on the plight of factory farm turkeys with our Let's Talk Turkey website. The campaign encouraged visitors to vote with their forks and choose a free-range organic turkey, or even better, meat-free alternative to their Christmas celebrations. We pushed the live button at the beginning of December, sharing the content with our clients, social media followers, and the wider design and food industry. We had an overwhelming response in the lead up to the festive season, with nearly 500 pledges, support from Paul McCartney's Meat Free Mondays campaign, and Hugh Fernley Whittenstall's River Cottage, and features on design publications, creative review, and design week. Within hours, we also had a brief from the Vegetarian Society, who loved our playful approach and commissioned us to work on a set of animated videos. Um, it's a wonderful project. Um, I think we all know now how bad eating meat is for this planet. You know, the, the crazy land use for agriculture, the cutting down of forests, which eat up the carbon in our atmosphere, which, you know, are driving us to unthinkable terrors. Um, and, you know, clearly, Raw Studio have done their bit with it, and I just think it's great to see the studio wearing their values, not shying away from upsetting people, because if you worry about upsetting anyone, you can put everyone to sleep by doing banal work that's middle of the road. And what's really cool about this project is these flat vector illustrations, they really want to be cute, they're crying out to be cute like a lot of flat vector illustrations are, but unlike a lot of those same flat illustrations, they've got soul. And uh, they left me with a feeling of deep sadness because these turkeys had a life to them and, you know, in these images that we are raw have created and they are disarmingly powerful and the animation really does drive home the cruelty in the meat industry. Um, it's wonderful to see a, you know, a studio doing this work, so keep it up raw and really, really great work. And I just think projects like this are also a dowsing rod to help find the work you want to be doing and deter the clients that you probably don't want to be working for. So do it, you know, be passionate and put that stuff out there. Um, let's have a look, let's have a look. Where are we up to? Uh, number 29, Nick Asbury's real-time notes. So Nick Asbury's become a, a real accidental mentor for me in terms of writing and producing indie books. Um, he's a wonderfully talented guy. His company, Asbury and Asbury, um, produce independent books around their client work, which he does in the design industry. Um, all of his books are absolutely brilliant. They've got such a dry humour to them, a real smart wit, and they're just so well written and produced. Um, you know, you wouldn't know they're indie published. I think he's got a couple, I think maybe the Perpetual Disappointments Diary got published recently, but most of these are indie books. And it was a great um, beacon of just how good an indie book can look and why it doesn't need to be published, you know. Um, come back for the extra podcast I'm going to put out on Thursday about that very topic about producing an indie book and we'll talk more but Nick's a, a real guiding light in that respect and you know he works the likes of Jim Sutherland on big uh, campaigns in, in the design world but I just think it's fair to say that both facets of his work whether it's his commercial work or his independent books one feeds the other and his, his real time notes are brilliant so go and have a look on his Instagram which is over at Nick Asbury where you'll just see daily real-time notes. He does them in the notes app on his phone. He posts them on his Instagram and they're very topical. They're very smart. They're very funny. They're very serious at times. They're very Nick Asbury and that's no bad thing. I also highly recommend his textradio.co.uk, which is a written conversation over a Google Doc and you can watch it either live or back on video with people from the writing and creative industries. 
I was lucky enough to guest on that recently to talk about my uh, year mum book and it was wonderful fun and we got so deep into creativity and about writing and about indie publishing and about illustration. So go and have a look at that conversation over at textradio.co.uk and check out Nick's awesome work at asburyandasbury.com. Number 29, uh, sorry, number 30, Jenny Robbins Biscuits. So this is not out yet, this is out on the 12th of November and it's a brilliant comic slash graphic novel by... Um, by Jenny Robbins and it's just wonderful observational humour. It's a story about London life through the stories of many women from online dating through to call centre coping strategies, um, oversharing on public transport and it's a hand-drawn highly engaging graphic novel and it's a total treat. I think it's uh, beautiful. So when I put the call out for personal work, Jenny Robbins got in touch and sent me a PDF for the graphic novel, and here we are featuring it. And I, I think we're going to do a full episode talking about this great project. Um, I sat down to get a taste this morning. Uh, you know, I thought, you know, I'll skim a few pages, and two hours went by, and I just read the whole damn thing, and it's just amazing. So I wolfed it all down with a great appetite. So it's uh, like I say it's well written it's striking it's an essential balance of words and well composed illustration like any good graphic novel and it's published by Myriad Editions and it's going to be out on the 12th of November uh, follow it on social hashtag biscuits comic um, it just feels empowering you know it felt empowering to me it's tender it's real and Jenny's passion is tangible throughout and you know you can't sustain a body of work so big as this and so dedicated and so detailed without having such passion um, it's a commendable body of work it really is and it does come highly recommended from me so check it out jennyrobbins.com uh number 31 the last one for this episode um david cohen he's a film director working in london and i shared a studio opposite david uh, and i've got him to thank for hooking me up with the right equipment to do this podcast when i first got the suggestion from illustration x to do that um, and it's his film, The Lost Sands, which is a real short film, and it was submitted for the Sci-Fi at London 24-hour film festival. And that's the brief. You have to shoot a, a film for science fi- a science fiction film in 24 hours and submit it for the awards. And they got shortlisted, David and his team, for The Lost Sands. Um, so it was a you know a, a lone female astronaut on, a, on Mars. She watches while her past becomes intertwined with her present. And it's an amazing, powerful little short, really well done. And you wouldn't think at all that he had 24 hours to do this thing. And, you know, as part of this process, we're talking getting access to a submarine where they filmed, you know, the, the, the craft scenes and desert scenes. It's just really well done. And, I, you know, they got, like I said, they got shortlisted for the Sci-Fi London 24-hour film festival. And I was delighted because David's so, such a lovely fella. And I was just uh, delighted when... They actually won the award the following year, I believe, with The Dreamsy. You know, they went one better and did it. So nice one, mate. Uh, Really, really awesome work. So go and check it out. Go and check every one of these projects out. Do your own stuff. Do it with passion. Do it with drive. Put it out into the world. Believe in it and others will pick it up. Trust me, it happens a lot. And at the very least, you will learn things. You will learn what works for you, what doesn't work. And use these projects to forge your own direction in this creative industry because there's, yeah, that will only come down to you. You can't sit there and just take on commission after commission after commission and hope to change your own direction or, or steer it the way you want, you know. It becomes a feedback loop if you're not careful. And I'm just a big believer in that. And I really think that if you want to be going in a certain direction, you have to do it and you have to show it in your portfolio. You have to have the faith to lead with it and get behind it. 
and you know we can do that these days with social and, and sending it out to people so go away and do it um thank you again to the sponsors the aoi.com the association of illustrators and illustrationx.com um the music for the show is by dirty freud who's actually helping me produce the audiobook for your mum as we speak over at spirit studios and his new track blood bayo is out and it's with ruby tingle who's a fantastic artist and musician really multi-talented lass uh, go and have a listen he's over on spotify and all the good platforms and like i said going to be a bonus episode later this week talking about indie publishing and traditional publishing through my own experience to celebrate the launch of your mum and other stories from the back streets of britain my third book which is out this thursday 22nd of october so do us a favor treat yourself to a copy share it out there there's a free give there is a giveaway actually on the social media at the minute uh, i'm giving away a copy of all three of my books signed as far as the physical ones go isolation watches an ebook only so i can't sign that one unfortunately um but i'm giving three away all you have to do is sign up for the mailing list over at bentallenwriter.com because that's basically how i you know get my words out there i don't bombard anyone with emails it's just a nice way to stay in touch with people who care about my work but because of gdpr i've kind of been relegated down to a really small mailing list so i want to i want to uh, keep you guys updated so drop your name and email on the homepage at bentallenwriter.com to enter and you can win all three of my books today signed and i'll get them out to you so go and do it see you on Thursday thank you for listening guys I hope you enjoyed this and I hope it inspires some awesome personal work have a great week